But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Aaron Winter, who is a sociologist of racism, terrorism, and the far right at Lancaster University, as well as the co-author alongside Aurelian Mondon of Reactionary Democracy. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Thanks for having me. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about how you found your way into the your current field of study? Wow. Yeah, it's it's been quite a long journey. I've, I've always sort of been an anti-racist and anti-fascist, and I when I went to start studying, I, I, I thought that was, I guess, to sort of challenge notions of objectivity and like that. I, I wanted to study the things I believed in, the things I didn't like in society and things I wanted to change. I, I started working on the far right specifically when I, in my PhD, before that I was doing a lot more sort of theoretical work. And uh, I was looking at the, the construction of racism as extremism or extremism as a proxy for racism and how the far right had gone from being sort of a mainstream phenomenon and, and foot soldiers of the state and the system in the US up until the 1960s to becoming a sort of marginalized anti-government force, one that was uh, preoccupied with its own victimization and loss, uh, themes which are coming up obviously a lot more today. What I didn't realize was that while doing my PhD in uh, in 2000, 2001, that when 9-11 would happen, no one would worry about the far right and terrorism anymore. And I started the PhD on the back of sort of the Oklahoma City bombing. But that that only, I guess, kind of convinced me more and more about the sort of the construction of extremism and the way in which racism functioned in the system, particularly targeting Muslims in this case. Uh, Aaron, you co-authored Reactionary Democracy with Aurelian Mondon, uh, the subtitle How Racism and the Populist Far Right Became Mainstream. Uh, could you tell us what is reactionary democracy? Well, so one of the interesting things about when we when we wrote that and when we've given talks about it is people have accused us of, of calling democracy reactionary, being against democracy. And what we're really interested in is, and there's, there's a few things. But one is the construction of democracy in ways that serve reactionary forces, forces in which uh, reaffirm, reestablish, and reassert particular unjust and unequal power relations, and in some cases exacerbate them. So already knowing how white supremacy operates, the way sexism operates, the way other forms of inequality and injustice operate, and the way in which we've seen a politics in recent years that construct those who enforce these things and the systems that enforce them as the victims of social change and the victims of some kind of, you know, untoward pressure. And sometimes it's called wokeness, political correctness, social justice, et cetera. But we're looking at the way in which particularly 
I guess, in order to make this argument, in order to defend the system, there is a construction of particular constituencies and particular narratives as representative of the silent majority, the people, the demos, all sort of, you know, trigger words for democracy, but not benign ones by any means, as a force that is underrepresented and needs to be represented against these forces of social change or these forces of what was also called wokeness, or as I said, or identity politics, or the destruction of the nation, our culture, our identity. And we see this most prevalently with this sort of the construction of the white working class as both left behind, and sometimes that's constructed in material terms, but often it then slips into sort of sort of Well, people are scared that they're going to lose their culture, their identity, their power, their privilege. And the way in which this has formed a a dominant flank in politics, in particularly in the global north, but also elsewhere, in ways in which you can have, you know, for example, police brutality, you can have the crushing and silencing of Palestinian solidarity and pro-Palestinian marches under the auspices of there's another group feels underrepresented. They feel like multiculturalism has gone mad. They feel something has gone mad and that we need to stop these things. We need, you can't speak your, when when you do say something, you're classist, you're anti-white, you're anti-British, for example. And the way in which that sort of national sort of defense, national security, national identity and culture, as well as those hegemonic identities are defended and protected by that. But those protesting these systems are not seen as part of the demos. They're seen as some infiltrators. And in that sense, that democracy is not actually democratic in who it represents. It's not democratic in the principles and values it stands for. It asserts and defends reactionary constituencies often constructed and elite interests and against many people, including the working class who are the most diverse class. And what relationship does this defense have to populism and also political centrism? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I, I think, I mean, as we argue in the book and in other work and, and Aurelian has done a lot of work in this area, particularly We've argued that populism as a concept is one in which one which turns racism, anti-immigration, anti-immigrant xenophobia and the far right, their ideas, their constituencies into a more popular and democratic call. So it's the it's the way in which it's it's that populism itself constructs the people in a certain way. And this allows sort of the media, political elites, et cetera, to euphemize racism in the far right and package this as a popular demand. That doesn't mean that everyone thinks populism as a concept or a force is necessarily a benign or positive thing. In a sense, what it's doing, and I think this links back into the sort of the white working class left behind argument or narrative, is that it simultaneously says these are the ideas and these are the people who represent our demos, our country, our democracy, and we need to pay attention to it. What it's what it has done is it is all the parties, I mean, in Britain, for example, and in, in the United States as well, and I, and I were increasingly in Canada, that it's turned all the part, major parties' attention 
to these far right ideas, which are seen as popular and electoral wins and something that cannot be done without. And we see this in, in Britain, particularly with the way Labour under Starmer is turning towards the red wall, the anti-immigrant control arguments, etc., as opposed to socioeconomic inequality and anti-racism, which is where the left should be and anti-fascism. But the, the thing is, is that I think by constructing it around the working class, which is where the sort of populism, the people versus the elites also comes in, you take a white community or community that's constructed as white, who are also not seen as privileged, or as they say, left behind, who are left behind. And it allows for the construction of a victimized people or demos and a victimized white community. But it's also a community that has been largely left behind by the capitalist system and the establishment political system, not because of anti-racist immigration migrants, um, minoritized and racialized people. And these are also, this is also a community. I mean, it's it's an imagined or constructed one, but they're all real people who suffer under obviously sort of capitalism and conservatism that that these capitalists and conservatives have been kind of throwing austerity at, cuts, um, deregulation of labor rights, et cetera. So it's also, so it's also like, these are, these are a community who have been at various times stigmatized. Now, the thing is, is that they are useful as a construction, because I'm not talking about individual people's beliefs here. There's a lot of doubt about a lot of the polls and the opinion pieces. And also the construction of working class people as racist and fascist is, is horrifically classist. But it's a stigmatized community historically that you can project racism, your racism onto, your elite racism onto. And then when things go, turn upside down and go wrong, like as Brexit has or when there is a sort of a rise in far-right street activism. You can blame it on their class, their education, their anger, etc., and you can stigmatize them, and then the elites in the establishment can walk away having never been tainted by the racism that they oversee, fuel, project, and, you know, exacerbate. It just occurred to me in listening to... Uh, your answer, Aaron, there's a kind of the notion of the, the white working class assumes considerable importance. But one of the things I think of in the Australian context, at least, is and on the side of, you know, labour, it's, you know, more or less the equivalent in here to that in the UK, is over the course of the last few decades, there's been, I think, a conscious effort not to speak in terms of class. That's you know, that language has, has almost entirely disappeared from not only, you know, within the ranks of the Labor Party itself, with some exceptions, but in terms of media and so on. How does that kind of, is it, is that, uh, is the Australian context different to the UK? I mean, and yet at the same time, well, one thing that has happened is that rather than class, there's been references to working families, shorn, you know, shorn of their class identity. I'm wondering if you've encountered that in the UK or elsewhere in, your, in the course of your work? Or what do you think, is that correct? Or what do you think that might mean? Yeah, no, I've, I, I've seen that happen. I think it's a really important point. I mean, I think it links into centrism, which I hadn't kind of answered that aspect of the uh, that part of the previous question. I mean, I think, I think you see it here, particularly with the emergence of new labor, late 90s, 2000s, where there's a move towards the center and towards sort of more pro-capitalist, 
uh, narratives as well and, and principles, interests, and policies. I think it's, you also see this historically in the United States where there's been this sort of like, you know, you, you, you are the class you want to be as a, and referring to sort of the working class as the middle class. But there was a cl- class politics in the United States in particular has emerged particularly on the back of reactionary movements. So you didn't see like a, a you know, Bill Clinton had his own American dream narrative from his class kind of mobility, but it wasn't the dominant part of the narrative. You saw this, though, with Reagan and Nixon, and you see it again with Trump. You see it particularly when the working class can be constructed as a weapon against other communities and interesting the left i think it has come back but i think it's only come back in these terms and you can see this from the way in which um class is completely separated sort of analytically and and in terms of sort of argumentation from race in fact they're constructed as opposed in political discourse in a lot of the sort of amongst the commentariat Etc. And I think I think in some ways that return is linked to that sort of that populist kind of or pseudo-populist rhetoric and narrative that to construct power in different ways. I think it's also part of a ironically, whereas a centrum centrism of the former left, New Labour, uh, New Democrats. Etc. may have gotten rid of class and the kind of what they might have seen as the stigma to conservatives, to the middle, to floating voters or to business and the middle class who made it or who are already there of, 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 of class antagonism or talking about class or stirring up class war. And we see it, we see a parallel with this, the way in which anti-racists are accused of making race the issue. The left has often been accused of making class the issue as if class and race aren't already issues and part of the system and structure. But what we see now, particularly, and maybe this is on the back of sort of the belief in the populist turn or the populist wave is a centrism that thinks the way in which to get to the middle is to get to conservative working class people or conservative white working class people. So again, it's been elevated, but it's been elevated in a sort of instrumental way that is both constructed and reactionary. And I think in that sense, the idea of, of centrism is as quite a, a sort of a, a dangerous concept because it, it pretends to meet in the middle, which I don't necessarily think is a good thing when we're talking about serious inequalities and justices and power differentials, but it pretends it's consensus, but it's cons- and 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 meeting in the middle, but it's um, across very particular lines, which reject a serious analysis of class and race, but also what it means to address class class and racial inequalities. You are listening to three CR eight fifty five AM three CR dot org and three CR digital on your DAB radio, or of course you can listen on the Community Radio Plus app, which you can get from any old app store. We're currently talking to Aaron Winter about reactionary democracy. I was just also going to add that if class politics so called appears, it's almost always invariably pitted against something else called identity politics. Yes. Which doesn't seem like a very productive or accurate or, you know, well, it is productive, but not in the ways we might uh, want it to be. But in that context, what do you think is the kind of, I guess, the cultural dimensions of reactionary democracy? Because 
as I think you've noted, we also have, you know, panics over free speech and wokeness and all this other stuff. What do you think is going on in terms of, I guess, less to do with, you know, the state policies necessarily and more in the, well, cultural domain more generally? Like how do you think that these sorts of ideas are actually reinforcing reactionary democracy and serving to uh, disempower those who might want to contest those forms for more, you know, emancipatory and and radical forms of democracy. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think the cultural element is sort of is is very very strong. I think I think it's I think in a lot of parts it's a sort of a you know reification of the <laughs> of the material base, but it's also a it's a massive distraction. I think in some ways, as I noted before, you had a lot of, you had a lot of discussion going on amongst politicians, commentariat, and I would also argue sociologists of class. And I think it's political scientists as well, particularly, but I don't, I don't think the material analysis is that strong amongst these, amongst that, those people I'm referring to. But that, that says this is all about, le- about socioeconomic, uh, class. It's about being left behind, et cetera. But it actually slips very, quickly into a, well, they're afraid of losing their identity, their culture, the, the comforts of their upbringing, et cetera, et cetera. And it goes straight to the cultural sort of realm. Now, if you look at that, I mean, that seems at odds with the attack on identity politics, particularly when a lot of this is fueled on the far right by identitarianism, right? I mean, just, you know, saying the quiet part loud, but at the same time, you then have this massive cultural apparatus of podcasts, you know, blogs, sort of media figures, etc., building up the cultural arguments against identity politics, against wokeness, against, you know, I mean, the weirdest one was the return of anti-postmodernism. And, and you have, you have this, you have this cultural machine developing and about free speech and free speech about often about the alleged cancellation or censorship of of the people who are having all these platforms and have all are part of this cultural machine, cultural media machine. I think what's in terms, it, it makes it easy, I think, to have a political analysis that seems edgy and disruptive, et cetera, but do so co- totally within the terms of the system itself. And I think that can be quite attractive to people. I think it doesn't help that the, you know, libertarians, reactionary libertarians run a lot of these platforms. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other issues, but I, I think the, I think the other thing is, is that we also have critics from the left who aren't helping matters and not helping matters by arguing against identity politics as if it, as if it breaks up or interrupts this sort of like the material analysis of sort of like, you know, the universal proletariat um, or when you have left-wing sociology of class, and I'm saying this partly as a sociologist, that are so preoccupied with white sort of inequality, suffering, you know, et cetera, that they feed data and legitimacy into what is effectively a weaponization of socioeconomic inequality into a reactionary and increasingly fascist politics. I, I, I think we have to, I think we have to call that out. I think we have to, you know, I, I mean, I think it's more increasingly difficult, but we have to challenge these narratives, which is something me and Aurelian do in our work and are really committed to. But it, 
we're at a point, and I, I can speak for Britain particularly, this moment, everyone in power <laughs> seems to think that these are still the terms of politics. That actually, if you listen to people who are suffering from racism or are talking about their identity and they're not white, you know, or that, that somehow they're, they're not worth the votes. And I think we see that we see this in the absolute most horrific example when we see, when we see this, I, the, 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 the absolute silence on the genocidal actions in Gaza and Palestinian human rights and the right to protest in solidarity. It's because certain people in this politics and certain constituencies aren't seen as mattering. And so I think, I think standing up and protesting and calling out and challenging these narratives and challenging out these actions are really important. Aaron, you mentioned earlier this uh, rise of racism within the Labour Party, yet at the same time, we've seen Keir Starmer's Labour come out very strongly against anti-Semitism, something he's joined in by people like Boris Johnson and now Tommy Robinson. seems that there's a, a rainbow coalition has formed. Could you speak a little bit about the role of anti-Semitism in British politics, perhaps specifically? Yeah, this is a, it, it's, it, it, it's been a hot button issue for a while. Yeah. And I'm, I'm speaking as, yeah, I guess I should say I'm, I'm speaking as sort of as a Jewish person in Britain, uh, an anti-racist and an anti-fascist. Anti-Semitism is an issue. It has been on the rise. I've done a little work on it. My focus has been particularly on it coming from the right. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to see how it's seen as particularly a left wing and a Muslim or Arab or Palestinian phenomenon. When uh, some of the same liberals who are, you know, marching against anti-Semitism were calling out Trump in support of uh, Unite the Right rally. The, and, and Trump was sort of like, you know, the useful idiot for racism and a proxy for racism in this case and anti-Semitism. But the, the interesting thing that's happened is the, and I, and I think this is a longer standing issue with, in relation to Islamophobia, particularly in the post 9-11, post 7-7 era. But when Corbyn became leader of the, of the Labour Party, that became the major issue. Now, I, I'm not going to defend Corbyn's manner of dealing with the, the issue. It was not good. But anti-Semitism was a weapon to, to attack the left, whereas what was being expressed predominantly was an anti-Zionism and a Palestinian solidarity. And I say this because what, what I've seen is, I mean, Starmer is, is, running on and leading on this attempt to clear out the Labour Party of anti-Semitism. And that means partly due to this promise, the baggage of Corbynism and the political climate that has constructed British Jews as completely uniform on this issue and a voting bloc. And I say this as someone who is implicated in this, but not part of it. And this is this has meant that anti-Semitism becomes the racism that is fought against. It becomes a proxy sometimes for all racisms, but it manifests in a sort of like a really dodgy philo-Semitism that sees protecting 
Jewish people from criticism of Israel as the dominant form in which anti-anti-Semitism and support for Jews should take. And what's ended up happening in a number of places where we see Jewish anti-Zionists, such as myself, being tainted. We've seen crackdowns on, on Jewish protesters in the United States and in Germany. And we also see the Labour Party under Starmer seemingly abandoning all other forms of racism and fighting against them. And in fact, not being attentive to and even feeding into a divide and rule that sees other racialized and marginalized and minoritized communities as the source of that anti-Semitism. And that feeds and exacerbates racism. I think the other issue is, and this is where the centrism comes in, the centrism almost always ends up on the terms of the right and the reactionaries. And we see labor on the center of these issues and around Israel, but also around migration and in league with that rainbow coalition you refer to um, so well, um, which includes the far right. It includes far right uh, sort of enabling intellectuals and media sort of commentators, but also sort of an activist far right, including sort of, you know, Tommy Robinson led marches and sort of the remnants of the EDL and other other organizations. And this is a place as a, as a Jewish person and as an anti-racist and someone who, uh, an anti-fascist, is that you're not only seeing this, but you're also seeing, and this is also amongst the, those intellectuals, you're seeing the construction of, of sort of anti-Zionism as a form of fascism and Nazism and anti-Semitism, obviously, in some cases worse than the Nazis. You're seeing the minimization of the Holocaust and you're seeing a redemption of the Nazis in order to construct sort of a, in order to sort of, you know, to allegedly fight anti-Semitism, but also to defend Israel's actions. And for the Labour Party to be on the side of that and not to stand up to it is extremely um, unsettling and scary and, and a really, really bad politics. I think, I think this is a kind of a longer story that's going to keep on going, but I think it's really important to note that the sort of the, the real coalition against racism includes Jewish people fighting against anti-Semitism in solidarity with people who are suffering racism and genocide. And in terms of responding to these developments, and I guess since the the attacks by Hamas on October 7 and the, and the declaration of a war on Gaza that's assuming increasingly genocidal proportions, it seems that's on the one hand. On the other hand, it seems to be the case that within, to some extent in Australia, perhaps the UK and in the US, there's an increasingly number, increasingly large number of young people who are developing different ideas about notions of solidarity, about how to combat anti-Semitism, the place of Zionism within, you know, the political imaginary and so on and so forth. That seems to be partly to do with, I guess, young people in particular seeking other sources of information, understanding and, and conceptions of themselves that kind of, in a sense, I guess, if not avoid that, then don't pay as much attention to establishment politics, 
mainstream media and so on. How do you view, I mean, do you think that's the case? How do you view these developments? Is this something that, you know, has a potential to have greater effect? Yeah, I mean, I think it does. I mean, I, I've always found this idea, like, so working partly in sort of extremism and terrorism kind of field, there's been such a, a focus in that field about sort of like youth radicalization and disinformation. And I've always been a bit skeptical of it for a number of reasons. One is, is that sometimes it, and I, I'm not referring to your question in particular, but like the, the assumptions in my research field, that it constructs young people as the sort of the vulnerable link or, or sort of vulnerable opening to this kind of politics, but also sort of absolves, you know, professional adults, multinational corporations of elite sort of, you know, influence peddlers of responsibility for these right-wing ideas or the system itself. But then what I find interesting is, is that the, the same people in that field will often see people with, I mean, even just say my politics, that of being stuck in online echo chambers and then look at the sort of the, 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 the marches for ceasefire and say, well, it's youth. It's the youth. It's the youth. And then if they're adults, it's, well, it's their, you know, it's their religion, their culture, their bad politics, et cetera. And it, it, it got me thinking with this about the way in which youth is constructed often and the sort of the online sort of information kind of, I don't know uh, what, what the term would be, context or landscape can feed a number of different arguments. Yes, I see, I see, I do see people choosing, and I see that with a great deal of reservation, choosing the narrative, the information they want. I mean, I, I choose what information I, I, I want, but it's, I'm not sure it's always a free choice. I think there's algorithms, there's, there's ideology at work. There's uh, certain assumptions about how the world works. There's a whole bunch of other, other things. And I also would, I don't, I, I would just, I guess I would dispute the idea it's an echo chamber because a lot of people are arguing for an echo chamber. But, but I do think the current situation and the number of, of overlapping but coinciding crises and corresponding crises that are going on are a test case for this in the sense that we see so many narratives going on, so many claims. So many, sometimes you're, sometimes I'll go online and I'll see people disputing what, you know, what other academics are saying or what, what the BBC is saying or what, you know, Fox News is saying or CBC or whatever, uh, or ABC. And in a sense, this is, this can fuel the worst things, but it can also fuel resistance. And I guess I do see a toxicity to it, but I also see a hope. But I, th- I do, I do think it's. I, d- I don't want to, and I say that being that I, I do think that certain things are toxic, and I th- do th- see th- certain things as hopeful. I don't think there's an equivalent between the different narratives. I think there is a, let's say, a reality out there that needs to be engaged with. But I also think, and it's just really important to note that it, it isn't just kind of like online or sort of youth. But it's coming from like real establishment media, as we've seen with the BBC, for example, recently with the sort of the translation of, of people, of hostages uh, are released by Israel and the, the sort of the, 
the damage that can do. I mean, as you, I think you've referred to this, there's, you know, concepts of uh, radicalization, online radicalization that have been discussed in you know, various forms of literature. But also it seems to be the case that since the inauguration of the, let's say, the war on terror, what, 20-something years ago, in response to these development, there's also developed within the academy and outside of it, concentrated on the state, I guess, a CVE or, you know, countering violent extremism and counter-terror industry. I was wondering if you could just comment on what you think is the relationship of that kind of development uh, within the academy and outside of it and, I guess, notions of reactionary democracy. Yes, no, absolutely. And, and I said, like, one of my primary areas is, is, is this exactly. So I'm quite happy to speak about it. I think there's several things that can be discussed. I mean, one is in the, we see historically, and let's, let's say, let's go back to 9-11, the racialization of terror. We've seen the way in which democracies have become increasingly authoritarian. They war, torture, occupation have been increasingly legitimized. The securitization of particularly Muslim communities has been justified and legitimized under the auspices of fighting terror. At the same time, that Islamophobia has fed a far-right extremism that has been largely ignored by CVE, PCVE, counterterrorism, counterextremism types and agencies and institutions. And this is a far-right extremism, which is, as we say in reactionary democracy, has been encouraged and mainstreamed by governments, mainstream media, elites, etc., and weaponized in the service of maintaining the status quo. And even pushing a little bit farther, or in some cases, like with the British hostile environment and prevent, a lot further against civil liberties, human rights, and sort of racial equality and justice and religious equality and justice. And so in a sense, that has been part of the move towards reactionary democracy, that the that the community, the, the sort of the, the so-called white working class left behind communities have also been constructed as worried about terrorism, worried about the, the implications of immigration and multiculturalism on not only the na- national identity and culture, but our national security. And we've seen escalating, escalating sort of rhetoric and policies around this. Now, what's interesting is, is that historically, and I've done some sort of more historical work on the US, the way in which counterterrorism and counterextremism have, have engaged with the far right, and they have, it, it's not true that when it's white or right, it's right wing, it's not considered terrorism. But they've often done so to get the sort of the more overt racists, what we call the illiberal racists in reaction democracy, out of the way to allow the system to chug along in in ways that are not so overt and look better, the more liberal racism and coded systemic racism being maintained. And Aurelian and I see liberal versus liberal racism as, fu- like populism, as fundamental to the mainstreaming of the far right. And, I mean, partly because liberal racism also gives a platform for free liberal speech, democratic speech, to fascists. We see these as fundamental to sort of the mainstreaming of the far right and this sort of the reactionary democracy phenomenon. 
I would, I would then move to more recently when, when, when the threat of the far right became overt in Britain, for example, and after January 6th in America, which is ironic in a, in a country that had the Oklahoma City bombing and other places, other, you know, the Klan is a sort of historical sort of, you know, iconic movement, but that, that the, 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 the acknowledgement of the far right has led to increasing focus amongst counterterrorism, counterextremism, PCDE types against the far right. But they've done it in ways which reaffirm the center, reaffirm legitimate political practice, discourse, etc., which I would argue is really racist and really reactionary, particularly in a context that has prevent and not the hostile environment. And they've done it in ways that can scapegoat the far right for guess the, the racist and colonial sins of the nation. And, but the far right also becomes useful again. Like it's, it, 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 the far right was kind of, you know, emboldened and I would, I would even argue encouraged by Secretary Estrella Braverman around the sort of the, the hotels for asylum seekers in the North and the sort of, and the opposition to what she and they referred to as hate marches in solidarity with Palestinians. And so the far right can come sort of in and out of this. And what I guess I'm waiting for is CVE types or PCBE types as preventing and countering to call out the mainstream, to call out these absolutely violent forms of state racism that the far right is supports, may even want more of. The populist sort of like left behind narrative demands more of and and we're only talking about like you know a gang of people causing you know violence and fear no doubt but the damage and the danger state racism does and sort of reactionary democracy does is is so serious and so severe and in fact many of the pcv types are working with these governments to help them fight these racist sort of mobs who support their policies are weaponized and operationalized in their service. But the, the, the government's policies themselves, including the counter extremism, counter terrorism ones are, you know, racist and not seen as the problem. And, and that system needs to, I think, be seriously unpacked and challenged, including the fact that we, you know, we had the Shawcross review of the independent review of prevent in Britain where it determined that sort of so-called Islamism is really the problem. There's a disproportionate focus on the far right. And one of the problems is that we can't necessarily tell the mainstream from the far right apart enough to counter it. I mean, that's saying the quiet part loud. That's actually saying that's what me and Aurelian were arguing, is that the mainstreaming is such, and the fact that, that the far right defends the mainstream and defends these systems is such that you can't tell them apart often unless a group go rampaging in the streets. And I think, I think this needs to be dealt with because I think we need to counter racism. I don't, not just one more marginal type that is already in the system. Aaron, you mentioned Suella Braverman just before who recently resigned for the second time was forced to resign yes. as Home Secretary after she, in protesting against the hate marches of Palestinian solidarity, sort of inspired a far-right march on Remembrance Day. Was her crime that she then had to you know, fall on her sword for, was, was that considered to be that she had inspired you know, this far-right march, or was it 
more to do with, you know, she somehow disrespected the poppy idolatry that goes on around the 11th of November. I think it's both, and I think it's other things as well. I and mean, that's, it's a, it's a, I find it's a fascinating situation. I mean, in a sense, I always, I thought of Braverman in some ways a bit like the far right to begin with in the fact that she's the proxy for the more extreme ideas that could represent that kind of imagined reactionary community or constituency and push from within. They could, the government could, that would allow them to kind of push the envelope, but also, you know, maybe even stop short. In the same way, the fact that she was, and she did call them hate marches, she made all sorts of terrible accusations, emboldened and even, I would say, encouraged in the far right to come out. And they caused, and, and she did so by by using those kind of triggers, right? Those kind of calling cards, like uh, those jingoistic, patriotic, you know, our traditions, our soldiers, our law and order, our, you know, we're being taken over by multiculturalism or we're being destroyed by multiculturalism. We're being taken over, you know, the Islamophobia. So these were all triggers to bring in the far right. The far right were coming. This was clear and she didn't, and others didn't denounce them, didn't say something. And she, you know, she became that individualized, exceptionalized scapegoat, totally responsible, like responsible, but still a scapegoat or something which others had said, supported or remained silent on, including the prime minister. The, 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 the interesting thing is, is that did she fall on her sword? No, I think she's she's going to yell from the sidelines. And she did win her sort of like her letter to Sunak. But I think she's also may even, you know, run for <laughs> the leadership. I mean, we're we're in a context right now where she's got her sights set on the prime minister and pushing the Tory party and the government further to the right on a number of issues, particularly immigration. And you've got, you know, Nigel Farage on reality TV pulling a Trump. There is going to be some far-right candidates or at least far-right cheerleaders pushing the mainstream. I think, but the other issue related to why she had to resign, I think is intimately linked, but more structural and probably more politically kind of policy-orientated. The Rwanda deportation plan was, you know, the one that was, and the sort of the Illegal Migration Act were her kind of projects. And this is what led to accusations of fascism and a whole debate around the kind of the, the Gary Lineker, et cetera, saying it reminded him of 1930s Germany. And Rwanda, the Rwanda plan had been overturned, uh, like, there was a, it decided, the course decided it was illegal. It went to the European Court of Human Rights. We're going to overturn it or we're going to reject it as well. But then go to the Supreme Court of the UK. And these rejections of its lawfulness and the inability to pass it and enact it was a huge loss for the Tory party. And these were placed on her solely. The reason I say this is not to individualize and exceptionalize her or to, sca- or to scapegoat her, but because we also know that they're still going to pursue it. it. What they're not carrying with it is her loss. And I think she became a perfect figure to lay these things on 
and continue business as usual. And she'll continue to push them from the sidelines and even maybe compete. Aaron, another public figure who recently inspired a race riot is Conor McGregor, the MMA fighter who, and I think this is real, I saw this on x.com, so you can never be sure. It could have been AI, but I think that the AI would have done a better job on Steve Bannon's hair. So I think this was real. Steve Bannon talking about Conor McGregor as, you know, a potential political leader in the wake of, you know, a few racist tweets suggested to me that maybe there was a bit of a paucity of ideas on uh, this side of politics. I was wondering what you thought about that. Yeah, I mean, I think, and this is why I was, I was being careful about the Farage and Braverman thing about like what they're going to actually do, because we're sort of in a moment where everyone simultaneously looking for the outsider and the celebrity. <laughs> And they're looking for them in two ways. One is they're looking to nominate them or suggest them. And in some cases, that's just stirring up the pot. That's just trying to get people kind of riled up and get some kind of attention to the ideas and get people, you know, sort of more media attention in general, because, you know, I mean, the the grifter influencer, you know, fascist demagogue kind of supply chain is is constantly in operation. But... I, I think people are also like this because they want to say, well, this is ridiculous. We can't have this. And then they're going to end up supporting someone who has the same ideas, who is a little more professional looking. And I think we see this, we see this as well. Like, I mean, with the Republican contest in the US, where it's like, we need someone with Trump's idea, but not bravado and, you know, style. Yeah, I, I don't think the McGregor thing is serious, but I do think he will probably make the rounds on, the, on, or at least people who support him for this will make the rounds on the podcasts and stir up. And as an opportunity, I always think of it as like fascist debating. It's always like a racist debating and, you know, it's about exposing the person, yes, for, not to, exposing them for more kind of, you know, entrepreneurial and political opportunities, but it's also including their own podcast or, you know, whatever. And it's also an opportunity to re-air these ideas. So there's a constant feed of people going, yeah, he tweeted something that everyone hates, except the people who are on my side. Let's get him. And then he'll do the rounds. He'll, it'll become a big thing. And then they'll move on to the next person who is a racist. And I think, I think it's, it, it's partly about that. But you never know. I mean, it's, we've had, and this goes back further than Trump. I mean, I remember like Jesse Ventura, the wrestler in the United States running for office. And I, I do wonder if Braverman could capitalize on the fact that uh, Farage is in the jungle eating worms to <laughs> peel some of that support away. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine that's not part of the calculation considering even just how much Farage has been a calculation in British politics for so long, despite, and even as a kingmaker, a rationale for like Labour and the Tories to move further to the right on immigration, despite a sort of like a real lack of, you know, potential as a politician, like to be elected, to have his party. I mean, the, 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 the electoral threat he and his party were constructed as to justify increasing anti-immigration legislation and authoritarian policies is shocking. So I'm sure he's part of the calculation, and I'm sure the prime minister is one, hoping they split the vote. Andy, mm. would you perhaps like to take us out with a final question? 
Yes, I've been thinking about this and, well, you know, Pazaran is an anti-fascist show. I have noticed that anti-fascism in some sense has become uh, more well-known, often in response to far-right street mobilisations, they've generated opposition and so on and so forth. And I guess consequently there's emerged also the study of something called left-wing extremism, which anti-fascism is in understood to be one manifestation of. I'm wondering just finally, Aaron, if you have any thoughts on the ways in which anti-fascism is constructed as a means, as a, as a form of political extremism, and given that these reaction right-wing tendencies don't seem to be going away, they're going to continue to need to be uh, fought back, what do you think that means for anti-fascist movement and the ways in which the state and, you know, the PCVE industry and so on is likely to respond to it? Yeah, I mean, really, really important question. I mean, I, I should start by saying, like, when you asked before about my 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 research and my, I mean, the origins of my interest in this go back to being, um, having family who were sort of victims and survivors of the Holocaust and fascism, um, but also growing up on in, in Toronto in the 80s when there was a massive wave of skinheads. And... So this is this is a question and issue, which is really kind of like near and dear to my kind of heart and concern and anger. I think going back to the PCVE counterterrorism, counterextremism question, I think that's what we're seeing. I think even when they when they started acknowledging the far right, they created an equivalence not just between what they called Islamists, terrible term, and fascists, but and fascists and anti-fascists, and the doubling down becomes the way in which the anti-fascists support Muslims being securitized and both oppose and, 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 and oppose fascism. And then there's a sort of, there's a, a squeezing, which the far right kind of emerges from. I think one, several issues this, this raises for me. One is, and, and, and we were critical in the book and I've been critical elsewhere of the term fascism, not because I don't think it exists. But because I think, and we argue this in, in our concept of illiberal racism, too often fascism and Nazism of the Second World War and then its remnants in the far right were seen as the only form of racism and the only thing we can fight, which becomes a recipe for counter-extremism and counter-terrorism, agencies and biases, assumptions, etc., and not sort of looking at the mainstream in the system. So I've been a bit cautious about using the term. What I find interesting is, is that when I've used the term for the mainstream right becoming fascistic or fascist, I've had like a real backlash to that. And then you also get this idea that it's the left that's really fascist. And the left is really fascist because of so-called cancel culture or because they don't tolerate other ideas, ideas other than their own, including fascism. Or they, or anti-fascism is labeled extremism. And then you have that weird argument about, you know, national socialism is socialism. And so you have this kind of like, you know, words, not lo losing all meaning, but gaining more meaning and more currency in certain political kind of structures and narratives. I think that the mainstreaming of the far right racism and fascism is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. I don't think we should use the term lightly, but I think 
the fact that it 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 turns on and undermines anti-fascism so clearly and effectively through its own systems is a real danger and it the idea that 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 the the left can be undermined like that liberals can be co-opted fascists can be co-opted is a very very dangerous landscape i mean i think that anti-fascists you know already do fight back make the politics clear um, and it's it's not unconnected to the fact that forms of anti-racism including you know critical race theory and decolonizing initiatives and other things are also accused of so many things and this is basically like a really an unarming of criticism resistance and op- opposition and i think there is a fight back but it's about it's about fighting a fighting a system that can use its own structures systems institutions and agencies against you is the is the i guess the eternal dilemma um and challenge and i think i think we all know that but it's in some ways i see it as my role as someone who works to some degree in counter extremism and counter terrorism to highlight these things and there's many more people who do but one of the things is is that we're not going to get invited into these agencies and 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 sort of have the ears of policymakers in this sense so yeah it's i think it's a a dangerous time but it's good to see resistance opposition fight back and solidarity well, Aaron, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for coming on. If people want to find you, you are on x.com at Aaron Z Winter, and people can get the book Reactionary Democracy through Verso Books. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Well, Andy, that's our show. We'll be back next week. See you later. See you then.
Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up, be heard, call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are, at home, work, driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your app.